You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of the siege at Abilara. The village of Abilara is a small one, barely more than a crossroads, in part of County Longford that lies close to its borders with both Cavan and Westmeath. Its closest town is Granard, barely a ten-minute drive north. One of the roads north through Abilara leads directly to Granard, slightly to the west. The other heads more to the east, towards the townland of Tunnymore, which skirts Loch Canale, and then on to Ballywillan. Along that road, towards Tunny Moor, sat a row of five houses. They were on long, deep plots of land, with plenty of space, though the houses themselves were modest bungalows. Behind were fields for farming. A number of families lived in the houses. The Farrells lived in the second-last bungalow. Next to them were the Carthys. The Burks were next door to them, and the first house that you'd reach on the left-hand side of the road was the Walsh's cousins to their near neighbours, the Carthys. The houses were just a ten-minute walk to Abilara's crossroads, and as with so many rural areas in Ireland, it was a quiet and close-knit place. John Carthy was born on the 9th of October, 1972. He was the son of John and Rose Carthy, and had one sister, just 14 months younger, named Marie. He grew up in the Carthy house that had been built by the local council in 1906 and which his family had occupied since it was finished. John and Marie were close in age and very close to one another. They began primary school together on the same day and played together with their cousins in the fields and forests around their homes. John was a happy child and did well in school. He was known for always having a smile on his face. He was close with his father, who worked his whole life for Bordnamona, and his uncle Patsy, who had taken over the Carthy family farm and lived just a few hundred yards from his own house. But in 1990, John's father passed away after a long illness. He'd suffered badly from bronchitis and problems with his lungs for a long time, and after a period of being in and out of hospital, John Carthy Sr., passed away on the 12th of April 1990, just a few days before Easter, on Holy Thursday. John was just 17 years old and about to finish secondary school when he lost his father. It was after this that John began to have problems. John Carthy suffered with his mental health. He was diagnosed with bipolar affective disorder and was known to have periods described as mental disturbances when he faced particularly stressful events. John's trouble began in 1992 when he was attending Warrenstown College, where he was studying horticulture. The Christmas before, he'd been depressed, missed his college term exams, and was having trouble keeping up when he returned. In March of 1992, John went to see his GP and was referred to St. Loman's Psychiatric Hospital in Mullingar, 
given the severity of his depression. While being cared for in the hospital, his doctor noted that John had suicidal thoughts, thought his family would be better off without him, and had visual and auditory hallucinations of his deceased father. John was treated as an inpatient there for two weeks, and when he left, he did so with a prescription for antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. At that point, John decided to leave his course and take up a job at a local bakery in Granard. There were a few times over the next number of years where John and his doctor felt that he required inpatient care. The most significant was when he was injured during his work at the baker's. But as time passed, John was not happy with what he felt was a lack of progress in his health, and so he returned to his GP and asked for a referral to another psychiatrist for a second opinion. That was how John Carthy ended up being seen by Dr. Shanley in April of 1995. After this was when Carthy received his diagnosis as bipolar and he began treatment for it. According to Dr. Shanley, John took to the treatment well. The doctor said he had good insight into his condition and, for the most part, took his medication as directed. He'd been prescribed an antidepressant as well as an anti-anxiety drug and the mood stabiliser, lithium. John attended appointments and follow-ups with no problem and was noted by Dr. Shanley as a, quote, quiet, very sensitive sort of person, end quote. Dr. Shanley said that John was not aggressive, and though he was prone to bouts of drinking where he may hear voices, John appeared, for want of a better word, normal most of the time. Dr. Shanley continued to see John Carthy, and some sense of stability in John's moods began again. He took up a FOSS training course and attended his GP regularly to maintain his mental health. According to his sister Marie, who was very close to her older brother, John attended local support groups for depression, organised by AWARE. He also attended lectures about bipolar disorder and read books on psychology. John wanted to understand his condition. The balance was maintained until John had a car accident on the 23rd of February 1997. He was seen at the A&E in Cavan and then by Dr. Cullen, his GP, the following day. In May, Dr. Shanley saw John once more and said that the road traffic accident had been very significant to John. At that appointment, his patient complained of difficulty sleeping, nightmares, and a developed phobia of cars. Shanley thought that these feelings and symptoms were likely not related to the bipolar disorder, but rather seemed more like symptoms of PTSD. After reviewing blood tests which showed that there was a therapeutic level of lithium present in Carthy's blood, Shanley sent John away with some sleeping tablets and a medical legal report to hand over to John's solicitor. All was quiet once again and would remain that way for about a year until two incidents in late 1998 would set John's life onto a different trajectory. John Carthy owned a gun. It was a Russian-made 12-bore double-barreled shotgun, and he'd inherited it from his uncle Patsy when he died. John had a license for it and used it to shoot game with friends, a common pursuit in rural areas. John was a member of the local gun club and was known for being very careful with the shotgun and making sure that it was properly maintained. It was a hobby of his and one that he was good at. He also enjoyed handball and was very involved in the sport in Abilara. 
he had helped to restore the old court in the village. Afterwards, though, John got a bit annoyed because the court was always overrun with kids and he could never seem to get a slot when he went down. Sometime after the restoration of the court, someone spoke about John to the guardie, saying he had told the kids playing there that he'd shoot them, though no formal complaint was ever lodged. When the guardie looked into the matter, they couldn't find anyone who had actually heard John say those words. It was all hearsay. But to make matters worse, around the same time, Carthy had gotten to a row with the local business owner about his dismissal from a job, and this man's wife had gone to the guardie saying she was frightened for her and her husband's safety because she'd heard John was mentally unstable and had a gun, and she'd heard about the rumoured threats to the kids. Carthy ended up getting a solicitor to write a letter to the man which seemed to have sparked the woman's fears, though, again, she never made a formal complaint against John. After all this, Gardie made the decision to remove John's shotgun, pending investigations into the allegations he faced. On the 10th of August 1998, a Garda called to Carthy's house and told him that a direction had been issued to seize all the guns in the local area, and did not tell John that his gun specifically was being seized, pending investigation. The guard felt that John wouldn't have voluntarily given up the weapon, and that if this had occurred, the situation would have become difficult. Immediately after this incident, John began to try and get his gun back, and eventually, three months later, he did, on the 13th of November 1998. He'd been able to present a letter from Dr. Shanley supporting his application, and John was able to get a license for his gun annually as usual. In the meantime, another event occurred that brought John into contact with the local guardie. In September of 1998, Abilara's Gaelic football club made it to the Longford County Finals. In celebration, a local publican, William Crawford, got hold of a flatbed and erected a large wooden effigy of a goat mascot made up in the club colours. He put it at the village green. But on the night of the 22nd and into the 23rd of September, the mascot was burned along with the borrowed transporter, which was valued at around £2,000. When Mr Crawford approached the guardie about the incident, he told them that John Carthy had been responsible. Crawford didn't like John, and when he was told by a guarder from another station that this guard had been told by two eyewitnesses that John was to blame, Crawford had no problem bringing the matter to the guards at Abilara. The local guardie decided that this information was reliable and so arrested and interrogated John about the burning. When they called to his house to invite him down to the station for a chat, John thought that it had something to do with the seizure of his shotgun. Instead, John was repeatedly accused of destroying the mascot. During two lengthy periods of interrogation, no notes were taken. Later, the guardie involved said, firstly, that John was talking too quickly to take down notes, and then their story changed to one where they asserted that they'd forgotten their duty to take down notes. In the three hours that John was questioned, he denied all involvement and also gave out about how he had been lied to when his shotgun was taken. While these interrogations were ongoing, another Garda, Garda Martin, followed up and contacted the people named as witnesses. But the first person he called said that what they'd been told was not true. The information, or more accurately, the rumours that the guardie had been acting on did not hold up under scrutiny. At around 11pm, John was released. 
The next day, John went to the doctor, saying he'd been assaulted while in guard custody. Dr. Cullen noted that, though there were no visible marks on John, there was tenderness present around his neck and shoulders, and John was quite upset while in the clinic. These two run-ins with his local guardee affected John deeply. In March of 1999, John moved to Galway and began looking for work in the building sector, as he had previous experience as a plasterer. He took lodgings in a flat on his own at first, but eventually began sharing with a number of other men once he was able to pick up some work for a few days of the week. In early 2000, Carthy was still living and working in Galway, though he had had some troubles there. He had a dispute with another employee on the building site and was dismissed. John thought that this had been unfairly done and mounted a one-man picket at the building site. Friends that he worked with at the time noted that John seemed a bit high, elated or manic, but they thought that this had something to do with what was going on with work. Eventually, John got another job on the same site with a plastering firm. In the beginning of that year, John had met a woman and began going out with her. Relationships were something that John had mostly avoided because of his mental illness, but in this case, John threw caution to the wind because of his feelings for the woman that would go on to be known as Miss X. The two met in early January of 2000 and were immediately attracted to one another. She found John to be caring, affectionate and friendly, and the two were similar in age with similar backgrounds. They started going out quickly and began seeing each other almost every day. But then, at the end of January, John's lease was up. He told her that none of his friends could help him out, and that his sister Marie, though she was living in Galway, wasn't willing to share her bedsit either. And so Ms. X allowed John, as a temporary measure, to stay with her. Shortly after that, John lost his job and began his one-man picket at the site. Ms. X said with this, John became, quote, domineering, possessive, jealous, argumentative and demanding of her time, end quote. She tried to stick with him for a few weeks, but eventually John's shift in personality due to his waning mental health became too much for her and she had to break it off with him. The same weekend as the breakup on Saturday the 20th of February, John went out in Galway with his sister and a friend Martin Shelley, also known as Pepper. John seemed agitated and a bit hyper. He got into an argument while in the pub and, as the trio made their way to Air Square to get some food, Marie became very concerned and decided to try to get her brother some help. Marie approached two guardi on duty at Air Square and told them that her brother was very depressed and needed help, asking if they'd call a doctor or have him committed. Initially, according to Marie, the guards weren't keen to get involved, but she told them that John had told her he wouldn't be around much longer and that she was worried. So the guardi explained the options to Marie, voluntary admission or committal under the Mental Treatment Act 1945. Marie told Gardy that she felt she didn't have a choice but to ask that they arrest him, but she would not agree to sign him into the hospital herself. John would have to be seen by a doctor. When Gardy approached John at the fast food restaurant, he was annoyed that Marie had involved the police and that he was to be arrested. He complained in the patrol car that they should be out arresting real criminals, but otherwise John was compliant. When he was seen by the doctor on call, Dr. Hogan, 
She found that John was slightly elated, but otherwise seemingly fine. She wasn't terribly worried about him, and when John said he did not want to be admitted to hospital, she did tell him that he should try and see Dr. Shanley as soon as he could manage. John was sent on his way and stayed at Marie's house that night, after the doctor updated her on the assessment. The following day, John went back to Abby Lara. He saw his cousin Thomas Walsh, who noticed that John was quite upset about having been arrested the night before. John told him that when he was sitting in the cell, he could imagine himself being stuck in one for years and was frightened about the prospect that he might be committed. Thomas told John that Marie had acted in his best interest, and though John said he knew that and agreed, he was still upset by the whole thing. Soon after, John wrote a letter to Ms. X. He said he understood what had happened between them and why. John knew he had been high or elated and that his behaviour had affected her and their relationship. He wrote to her asking for another chance or at least a chat. He assured her that his mood had stabilised and told her that he had always avoided relationships because of his mental health issues, but that she was very special and important to him. The two did not get back together though and soon after, John decided that he should move back in with his mother in Abilara, at least temporarily. John knew his mood had shifted, but there were other, more pressing reasons to stay with Rose too. There was a lot going on in his home place. Nearly a hundred years after being built, the family home was in a state of disrepair. Rose had written to the council asking for the situation to be rectified, and the council decided that the best solution for the dilapidated house was to rebuild rather than attempt to repair. They thought that by that stage it was unfit for habitation, and so a new house for the Carthy family was to be built nearby. When it was completed, the family would move in and the older, dangerous house would be demolished. At one point in this process, Rose had sent a letter to the council, but on John's prompting. He wanted to know if they would leave the old house up. His reasons for wanting this seemed to have stemmed from a feeling of nostalgia over the old house, it being where his father and grandfather had lived and the place where John had memories of them. But the council said that they would not build a new house if the old one was to remain standing, and so plans were made to build a newer bungalow alongside the old one that Rose would move into when complete. By April of 2000, the new house was built and sat to the right of the old house and further back from the road. All that was left to do was to have the power connected, and then Rose, with the help of her son John, would move into the new building. Early April of 2000, after his move home to Abilara, John got a job in Longford Town working as a plasterer for a local builder. He interacted and chatted as normal with his workmates there and had relatively normal conversations, but they did recall that John told them that he was depressed from drinking too much, that he spoke about his father's death a lot and the trouble that he had had with the Gardee over the mascot incident. Nearly every day, John would complain somehow about the Gardee. In the run-up to the Easter break, John was seen around Abilara, both going to work in Longford and out and about socially. The weekend of the 15th and 16th of April, he helped out some friends on another building site, laying foundations. 
John seemed his normal self, if not a bit cranky. He was complaining about the local guardie, and it seemed the incidents relating to the seizure of his shotgun were playing on his mind. On Tuesday, the 18th of April, John went to work as usual. He got a lift into Longford from a neighbour and seemed well. That afternoon, he went to the pub for lunch, but had too much to drink and walked off his work site when he returned. He went back to the pub for a bit and then collected his prescriptions. When he got home that evening, John spoke with their neighbour, Alice Farrell. She said he was a bit agitated and was talking about the Gardee. Miss Farrell thought that perhaps someone had been teasing him again about the mascot incident, and so she told him not to be worrying and tried to reassure him. The following day, Wednesday the 19th of April, John Carthy woke at about 10am. He spent most of the day indoors watching television and listening to the radio. He was quiet, but his mother Rose described him as being in good form. He rang his sister Marie and joked with her. But sometime between 3 and 4pm that afternoon, John got agitated and upset. He began talking with his mother about the move into the new house, which was just awaiting being connected to the electricity grid. He kept repeating that he wouldn't be put out of his house, that no one could make him leave. Rose tried to reassure John, but it didn't work. Around four o'clock, John went to a cabinet in the hallway and took out his shotgun. He then went outside, discharged a number of shots and came back into the kitchen, telling his mother she should go over to her sister's house, the Walsh's, which was just two doors down. Rose decided to go, worried that John was acting strangely. Just after five, Rose arrived at the Walsh house, where she found her sister Nancy, her niece Anne, and neighbour Alice. They'd heard the shots, but had thought nothing of them until Rose appeared. She was crying and upset. She was worried about John, and she told them that she was scared he might try to hurt himself. She'd never seen him like that before, and it had frightened her. It was decided that they would have to call the Gardee, as much as John wouldn't like that. They called Granard Garda Station and informed the officer that answered the phone that there was a situation ongoing in Abilara. John, who was bipolar, had a gun and had discharged the weapon and was acting strangely. The Garda assured the women that she was sending officers to them as quickly as possible. The women also contacted Dr. Cullen, John's GP, and told him what was going on. Dr. Cullen was startled to hear that John was acting that way. It wasn't like him, and although the behaviour was very unusual, the doctor also feared that John may harm himself. He told another of Rose's sisters, Rosaline, that he would come out to them right away, having just finished his surgery hours, and that he would meet the guardee on the road. Dr. Cullen arrived there a short time later, and as he waited on the guardee, he too heard a number of shots discharged from near to where he assumed the old Carthy house was. He was worried both that John would hurt himself and that John might become more agitated by the arrival of the guardee, given he was not well disposed to them after the mascot incident. Around ten minutes after Dr. Cullen parked his car, he was joined by the first officers on the scene. Two Garda arrived at the Walsh house somewhere between twenty-five to six and quarter to six and spoke to the women gathered there. They were all upset and concerned and a bit panicked. They were told that John had told his mother to leave the house, that he had fired shots, and that he was acting out of sorts. 
Gardie were also informed of his bipolar disorder, that John was medicated, and that he had a psychiatrist. Rose told the Gardie that John had a mobile and gave them his number, after telling them that he wouldn't like the idea that she'd handed it over to them. The two Gardie decided to go ahead and try to approach the Carthy house by car. Halfway up the drive, they heard two shots, one after the other, and so they backed up and away from the house. After that, Dr. Cullen met with the Gardie and told them that John was his patient, he was suffering from depression, was likely having a manic episode, and that he didn't think John would be happy to see the Gardie at the house, given his past interactions with them. Dr. Cullen had sat into the patrol car and had a quick conversation with these two officers before more senior Gardie arrived on scene. The Gardie gave Dr. Cullen John's mobile number and the doctor tried to contact his patient, but there was no answer. After that, it seemed the Gardie no longer needed him and so Dr. Cullen headed home for the night. A second attempt to speak with John was made by Gardie. Once again, they approached the house by car, but this time they drove around the side of the house and parked behind an extension that had no windows. From that position, they would have some sort of cover if the shotgun was fired again. Two Garda, Campbell and Gibbons, left the car running and made their way to the front door. They knocked and called into the house asking if John was okay, just as they heard another shot ring out and glass shattered somewhere nearby. There were sounds of furniture moving coming from inside and the guards decided to take cover around the other side of the house, furthest from the road. Another shot rang out, apparently from the opposite gable where the kitchen was and the window that looked out onto the road. One of the officers yelled to John, announcing that they were Gardie and telling him to throw the shotgun out of the house, but there was no harm done. From inside came a yell of, Fuck off! The guards told John that if he threw the gun out, they'd get the doctor and John could talk to him. The response was another shot. This time it hit an unmarked Garda car that was parked in the driveway. Each attempt to get John to talk to them and to throw the gun out of the house was met with swearing and shots fired, and from their position behind the house, the Gardie felt stuck. At quarter past six, the officers at the Carthy house rang the station in Granard and requested backup. As other Gardie arrived, the nearby Walsh house was evacuated and a road checkpoint was set up. While the two Gardie who had approached the Carthy house remained stuck, taking cover from the shots that had been fired, more senior Gardie were notified of the situation and began arriving. As they tried to assess the situation, a call was placed to the Special Detective Unit in Dublin to notify the Emergency Response Unit, who would also assess the situation. The Garda Press Office was notified of the ongoing incident and at 7.12, it was reported by TV3 News that there was a situation in Longford. John's cousin Thomas had been contacted by the family and was driving up from Cork and Garda Transport was arranged for Marie in Galway and then she was contacted and told what was going on. By 8pm, the decision was made to send a negotiator, along with a team from the emergency response unit, to the scene in Longford. Eventually, the two Garda, who were directly beside the house, were approached and briefed, and they were able to move away from the house. 
armed guardie who held either Uzi submachine guns or standard issue 38 revolvers were positioned at various places around the old Carthy house. Gardie also spoke again to Rose Carthy to get more information about John and what might have led to this behaviour. All the while, John periodically fired his rifle out of the house near to where the officers were stationed. The phone line which had been disconnected in advance of the anticipated move was reconnected. John hadn't answered any calls to his mobile, not even for Marie who had tried to call him while she was en route to Abilara from Galway. The superintendent present at the Carthy property got advice from the negotiator and tried to talk to John over a megaphone from a safe distance. He introduced himself, tried to sound personal and casual, and then immediately asked John to throw his shotgun out the window. The response was yet another two shots. After that, a sergeant spoke to the negotiator. They'd been told it was important to establish contact and try to initiate a dialogue. This guard took up the megaphone and assured John there had been no harm done and that the guardie were there to help him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Again, shots were fired from the house. When Thomas Walsh arrived at the house, he too tried to talk to John through the loud hailer. He told his cousin that he was going to try and ring John's mobile. Initially, John didn't pick up, but after a few tries, John did answer it. He was not pleased to hear from Thomas and gave out to him, saying that Thomas didn't really care and accused him of not visiting when he was in St. Loman's Hospital, something which was not true. By half nine, the press had arrived and set up camp in Abulara, just beyond the point where the guardie had closed off the roads. Superintendent Farrelly from the Garda Press Office met with the media who were gathered at the church at about 10pm and gave an off-the-record briefing to the reporters that were there. He told them that the subject could possibly be watching TV or listening to the radio and asked that they not report John's name. John was vulnerable, he said, suffered from mental illness and in order to try and ensure safety, it was important for that kind of information not to be made public and possibly heard by him. Farrelly repeated this request when he spoke to arriving members of the media throughout the following hours. Superintendent Farrelly himself gave interviews to the press and appeared on a number of news broadcasts for television and radio. The Emergency Response Unit, the ERU, arrived around the same time. The team was made up of six members, including the officer who would serve the dual roles of team leader and negotiator. With them, they brought firearms, ammunition and flashbang grenades. Some of the local guardie were moved from their positions close to the house and were replaced by members of the ERU. Local members of the force would now play a backup role to the ERU. A negotiation point was set up just in front of the kitchen window behind the front garden wall under the cover of a pillar. Because John was not responsive to phone calls, this less-than-ideal spot within sight and within range of John was thought to be the only safe place that the guardie could attempt negotiations from. Access to this spot was limited. There was sort of a command post set up around a guarded jeep that was parked on the road near to the house. It was slightly uphill in the direction of Abilara, and though the car was only a short distance from the Carthy house, there was no direct line of sight to it. This was where Gardie with a backup role, both armed and unarmed, gathered, and where the superintendents in charge of the scene stationed themselves throughout the siege. 
The decision was made that the Gardaí would not try to enter the building, but rather control and contain the situation and prepare for Carthy leaving the house, either armed or unarmed. The ERU figured that there were three situations that they should prepare for. The first was that John gave up his gun and came out of the house. The second was that he came out of the house with his gun, but then surrendered it on direction of the Gardaí. And the third was that he came out, completely ignored instructions and began moving around. It was decided that in the last case, the ERU would adopt a policy of moving containment. That is, they would form a ring around him at a safe distance and basically follow John wherever he went. The officers could see John inside the house, pacing around the house and holding the shotgun, and occasionally trying to take a quick look out the window. At 25 past 10, he shot the gun once more. Around the same time, a guard was appointed to act as a liaison between the Carthy family, who were gathered together in a house of a close family friend in Abilara. At 11pm, Marie Carthy arrived with Martin Shelley, John's friend known as Pepper. When she was introduced to the officers in charge of the scene, she told them about her brother's illness and that she didn't know what had caused this, but said that John had been worried about the move and how his mother would settle into the new house. She told them that he had no liking for the guardie and advised that it would be best if they just left him alone. She said, quote, the best thing to do would be not to confront him and give him his own space for a little while, and he would have come out. I told them that with all the guardie around the house and the media present, it wasn't very good for someone suffering from depression, and especially for John, who didn't trust the guardie, end quote. At 11.38, Sergeant Jackson, the negotiator, got through to Carthy on the phone. John asked for his solicitor and told the guard to fuck off. Jackson tried to get John to tell him who his solicitor was and how to contact him and said that they'd get the lawyer there. John said only that he wanted the best solicitor and that he wanted the solicitor to come and go into the house and talk with him. The sergeant said that that wouldn't be possible while John had the gun on him. Jackson said he'd get John whatever he wanted, a solicitor, a priest or a doctor or whoever, and John could meet them outside. But John insisted that he would not be coming out. Instead, John began to aim his shot near to the pillar of the wall that Jackson had set up as the negotiation point. There was a direct line of sight from that pillar into the kitchen window at the front gable of the house. When Jackson then asked John to put the gun down and give himself up, John said, no way come and get me. The guardie began to make inquiries to see if a solicitor could be brought to the scene. They had no idea who John might want to come, if there was a particular solicitor or if anyone would do. No one in the Carthy family were told about John's request, though. Shortly after, Sergeant Jackson decided to change tack. He sent word to the superintendents behind the cordon that he wanted to try and have John's friend speak with him, Martin Shelley the man who had come with Marie from Galway just a few hours before. He thought John might be more willing to speak to Pepper than Agarda and knew that Mr Shelley was anxious to speak with his friend. At that point, Martin Shelley was at the Divine's house, along with the rest of John's family. But the Garda who had dropped him there had taken a rest break and Pepper wasn't located or contacted until 2am. So Martin Shelley and Marie Carthy arrived back at the house at a quarter past two. Martin was taken off and Marie wanted to go too to talk to her brother 
but Senior Gardee there told her that it wasn't the right time, that John had wanted to talk to Martin, and they stopped her from making her way closer to the house. Martin was brought down to the negotiation point and began using the megaphone. Sergeant Jackson had told him the gist of what to say, but encouraged Martin to use his own words. Pepper spoke for some time over the loud hailer, trying to get John to give up the gun and come out of the house, but there was no response. The situation remained unchanged and at a sort of stalemate until just after 3am, when John requested cigarettes, but Gardie couldn't decide on a method of delivering them to John that they thought was safe, nor were they sure it would help them further in their task to get John to disarm himself to just give him the cigarettes. Sergeant Jackson thought perhaps they might be able to get John to compromise or cooperate by giving up his gun or maybe even just some ammunition in a sort of trade for cigarettes, but John still wasn't willing to make any concessions. At 4am, Gardy placed a call to John's GP, Dr. Cullen, asking if they could come by. Rather than ask for any detailed information regarding John Carthy and his medical history, they asked to be given any medical files that Dr. Cullen might have that would assist them. It was through the review of this file and the letters it contained that they eventually discovered that John was, or at least had been, a patient of a psychiatrist, Dr. Shanley, and then the decision was taken to contact him. Shortly after, the members of the ERU who were at the negotiation point saw John putting down blankets preparing to rest on a couch in a position that he could still keep an eye on what was going on outside his home, John placed the shotgun on the floor beside him, but still within easy reach. John rested from five until half eight, and appeared at points to actually be sleeping. Many of the guardie who had been at the Carthy house for hours also took rest breaks at that point, including the negotiator, Sergeant Jackson. Others were sent to have a closer look at the house to see if perhaps entering it would be an option to bring the situation to a close, but it was decided that, given the layout of the house, this would likely not work. A decision was also taken in relation to contacting Dr. Shanley. They'd make a call to him during normal business hours later in the morning if they weren't able to resolve the situation when John woke up. There was a hope that, after some rest, John might become less agitated and things would settle down. The members of the emergency response unit also decided that they would cut the television cable that was going into the house. It was felt that John, having the TV on and turning it up and down during the night, had hampered their ability to negotiate with him. There were also fears that he would come across coverage of his siege on Irish stations as the press had been camped out in the village for the entire night. When John woke up, he was aggressive and agitated and began to bash the butt of the shotgun against the wood in the windows. It looked like he was trying to break it out entirely and Gardie were worried that he would try and exit the house that way, that he'd come right out through the window. Jackson took up the loudspeaker once more and asked John to come out, if not for himself, then for his family. John stood in the window and bared his chest, shouting, quote, Go on then, shoot me. And Jackson responded that no one wanted to shoot him. They didn't want anyone hurt, but again, John stopped responding. And then, just after 9am, the shots began once more. John fired his weapon twice in the following hour. 
At 10am, three packets of cigarettes were gotten, provided free to the guardie by the local shopkeeper, and brought back to the Carthy house. John asked for them again, but Gardie tried to negotiate a situation that would make it safe for them to pass them on, which John wouldn't engage with. Around the same time, Thomas Walsh, John's cousin, arrived at the house again and asked if he could have another go at trying to talk to John. He was brought to the negotiation point and eventually stood up and put the loud hailer down, trying to talk to John normally through the kitchen window. John came into view still holding the shotgun. Thomas said his cousin looked terrible, entirely unlike himself. He was in a bad state. The guardie eventually pulled Thomas back down behind the wall, thinking that John had levelled his gun at his cousin. At that point, Gardie felt that given John had pointed a gun at a civilian, someone he knew and liked, the situation had devolved somewhat. They decided to ring for an ambulance to be present at the scene. One was dispatched and sat in the town of Granard, waiting to be called should it be required. Dr. Shanley made contact with the guardie and told them that he would make himself available at the scene at 3pm, and Dr. Cullen arrived after another request at around 11am. When he arrived, he was told that things were difficult and progressing slowly. Dr. Cullen said he would be available to the guardie for as long as was required, and was sent away until and if he was needed again. Sergeant Jackson continued to try and cajole John into coming out or engaging with him in some sort of constructive way. He told John he wanted to give him cigarettes, but they needed to find a safe way to do that. He said that Dr. Shanley would come and speak to him and that he could get him a place in St. Patrick's Mental Hospital if he wanted. He reassured John that the best thing for him to do was to come out, that everyone just wanted him to come out to help him and to see him safe. At one point, while Jackson was speaking to him, John put his head into his hands as if he was considering what Sergeant Jackson had said. But then he yelled, quote, No, you won't break me, end quote. While all of this was ongoing, after speaking with members of the press, a decision was made by Superintendent Farrelly that, rather than have them possibly go to lengths to cover the story of the siege, they would be briefly brought nearer to the scene by Gardie and permitted a few minutes each to take pictures, video and to report. Some members of the Gardie were not particularly pleased with the idea of filming and photography going on in a situation where there was a risk and Gardie and members of the ERU were actively managing a situation, but it was felt that this was the only way to make sure that reporters didn't end up trying to approach some other way. About an hour after that, Anne Walsh went to the Gardaí stationed at the checkpoint at the church in Abilara and asked that they stop the media coverage of the situation, that it was bad for her relative and that there should be a media blackout. This wasn't possible, she was told. It was not something the Gardaí had the power to do. They'd so far managed to keep John's name off the airwaves, though he had been named in the morning's edition of the Irish Independent and Gardie had kept information about his recent breakup under wraps too, but a blackout was out of the question, and both the Carthys and Abilara would have to put up with the media scrum for the moment. At 12.24pm, John Carthy picked up his phone. He rang a friend and former work colleague, Kevin Ireland, who at the time was working, driving a van in Galway City. John told him that he was holed up in his house, surrounded by Gardie. To Kevin, 
John sounded calm and relaxed. He told John that he should give himself up, and John said he would if he was given a solicitor. John said to him, even his family wouldn't get him a solicitor. Kevin asked him, what solicitor? And John gave him the name Mick Finucane, saying he was a solicitor up in Dublin, one with what John described as Republican connections. Kevin said to him to not do anything stupid, not to hurt himself or anyone else, and John replied that he hadn't a notion of doing anything like that. He just wanted to keep the guardie away from the house. And then the line went dead. Kevin Ireland rang his mother to tell her what had just happened, and as a part-time employee of Shannonside Radio, she contacted a reporter that was out in Abilara. They called Kevin back and told him he needed to go to the Gardee and report the call, and the reporter in Longford, Nolene Leddy, told Gardee about the call and passed on Kevin's number. They never rang him, but Kevin did present himself at Mill Street Garda Station and was asked to speak to Gardee in Granard on the phone. He passed on the information about the solicitor in Dublin and recalled as best he could what John had said. Gardee in Granard looked in the phone book but couldn't find a solicitor named Mick Finucane in Dublin. When the information was passed on to those at the command base and negotiation point at the Carthy House, they were told that John had said the phrase, quote, watch this space, and interpreted this as John indicating that he was going to do something soon, that he was going to take some sort of action. No one followed up with Kevin Ireland directly, nor were any other details of the call passed on. The guardie at the negotiation point tried to get John to name the solicitor he wanted so that they could contact him, but John wouldn't give them a name and just said that he wanted a Republican one. This was followed by John shouting periodically at the guardie things like, free state bastard and you're just like the black and tans. Then, just after one o'clock, John shot at the loud hailer that had been placed on top of the wall. And shortly after that, John rang Sergeant Jackson asking why there were a hundred guards outside his house. Jackson told him that there were only a few guards and it was only because John was shooting at them. If he gave up the gun and came out, it would all be over. But John said that he couldn't do that. He was looking at 10 years and that he wouldn't let them take his gun from him again. Jackson tried to reassure him that everything would be okay, but also noted to himself that John seemed to be thinking about the consequences of his actions for the first time, and took this to mean that perhaps John was more rational and maybe would be more open to listening to him. At around 2pm, Sean Farrell was brought to the command centre to try and speak with Carthy. He was a local businessman and someone John looked up to, and given what the Gardaí interpreted as a recent change in outlook, they thought Mr Farrell might be effective in getting John talking and perhaps convincing him to give the siege up. But John never responded to Sean Farrell, nor would he speak with him on the phone. After that, John became more agitated. He moved around a lot and quickly and was checking out the window nearly constantly. He began breaking windows again and threw the house phone from the window and yelled at Gardee some more. John said that if they wanted him, they could come and get him. And then, with his shotgun in one hand, he pointed to his chest and yelled, shoot me, shoot me. At about quarter past four, Dr. Shanley arrived and met Gardee at Abilara. He'd been travelling to the west with his family for the Easter holiday 
and on his way to Abbey Lara, he'd gotten stuck in holiday traffic. He was first brought to see Ms. Carthy and John's family to try and assess how John had been in the previous days and weeks. But given that the family were in shock and it appeared that Rose had been sedated somewhat, there was little to learn. So Dr. Shanley, Marie Carthy, Thomas Walsh and Martin Shelley made their way to the command centre, near to the new house once more. By early that morning, the press corps had begun growing at the centre of Abilara. Paul Reynolds, RTE's crime correspondent, was joined not only by a television crew, but also by a senior content editor for 5-7 Live, RTE Radio's daily evening news programme. Niall O'Flynn had been driving into work in Dublin from Sligo and had heard that there was an ongoing incident in Abilara, so instead he had stopped there after checking in with his superior at RTE. Niall O'Flynn went about preparing an item for the radio programme with a view to it being the leading piece that night. He interviewed people in Abilara and asked them about John. He spoke to a neighbour, Michael Heaney, and to one of John's acquaintances, Mary McDowell. They both spoke about John and their interactions with him. Mary spoke about how she knew John had recently been in a relationship, but that the woman had left him. Both went on to plead with John to come out of the house and assured him that there was help waiting for him. The package that O'Flynn prepared would be the first to air after the news headlines that evening. A few minutes before five, Kevin O'Flynn met with Superintendent Farrelly, head of the Garda Press Office. Farrelly had met with Paul Reynolds when he first arrived at Abilara and had asked that Carthy not be named. The piece was described to the senior Garda and Farrelly expressed dismay that the programme would be airing personal details about Carthy's relationship and more so that it would be the first to name John Carthy on air. O'Flynn told him that given that there were just minutes to spare, it was too late to change the piece at that stage. The siege at Abilara and John Carthy's actions were to lead the broadcast on national radio that evening. Meanwhile, back at the house, John was told that Marie wanted to speak to him and that Dr. Shanley had arrived. A shot rang out at 5.06, forcing Gardy to take cover once more. There was banging and yelling coming from the house. Gardy told Marie that given John was shooting, it would be too dangerous to let her go to the negotiation point and so they asked her to ring her brother. But even after multiple tries, he didn't pick up. Then Dr. Shanley was prepared to head down to the negotiation point to speak with his patient. He got out of the Garda car he had been sat in and began to walk towards the old Carthy house and the wall behind which the ERU and Sergeant Jackson were stationed. But before he made it to the wall, he heard shouting. This time it was the Gardaí, and they were yelling, He's out! He's out! Dr. Shanley retreated alongside Gardaí who were out on the road and began to take cover. At five minutes to six, John Carthy had left the house. He was carrying the shotgun, which was broken open as if to be loaded, and as he made his way around the house and towards the driveway, he removed a cartridge from the gun and tossed it to the ground. He closed over the gun and continued on his way at a brisk, determined pace. As he came across Gardy, members of the ERU, who had weapons drawn, they shouted for him to drop his weapon, but John ignored them. It was as if they weren't there. He made his way down the driveway and onto the road. He began walking towards Abilara and the command vehicle. 
By this point, the butt of the shotgun was tucked beneath his elbow, and he was holding the barrel with his left hand. His right hand was near to the trigger. The shotgun was about at waist height, and the barrel was pointed towards the command centre and the armed and unarmed guardee and civilians near to it. Sergeant Jackson was pleading with John to please put the shotgun down, but John made his way up the road towards the command centre and the civilians and guardee who were gathered there. Sergeant Jackson took the decision to try and disable John against Garda policy. John Carthy was shot in the leg, but it had no effect. Jackson shot once more, but again, John kept making his way down the road. Garda McCabe, another member of the ERU who was watching Carthy advance towards the command vehicle, decided to take a shot. He struck John in the lower back. Again, John kept walking, seemingly unaffected, and still fearing that John would shoot at the people gathered nearby, McCabe shot once more, striking John again in the back, but higher. With that, John fell, down and slightly to the right, and hit the road in front of him. Gardie, who had been watching, rushed towards him to ensure that John was not going to be able to take up his shotgun once more, but within seconds it was clear that medical assistance was more appropriate. First aid was begun and the ambulance was called to come from Granard Garda Station. A local doctor was called who gave John a shot of adrenaline. None of this made any difference and John was pronounced dead at 11 minutes past six on the 20th of April 2000. It was Holy Thursday. Immediately after the shooting, the scene on the road just outside the Carthy home was preserved and Dr. Harbison, the chief coroner, was notified that he was needed in Abilara. The jeep that had been used as the command centre was removed from the road. Sergeant Sean Layden, a scene of the crime examiner, was brought in from Athlone. He arrived at 25 past seven and began his work by noting John Carthy's position in the road and the number of 9mm cartridge cases nearby. There was also a shotgun noted next to John, which had recently been discharged. Directions were given that the ERU members were to hand in their weapons and any ammunition that they had to Mullingar Garda Station. At half ten, a hearse arrived and the body of John Carthy was transported to Mullingar Hospital, where Professor Harbison was waiting to begin his examination. He had decided that, as the cause of death was not in dispute, there was no need for him to visit the scene until the post-mortem was completed. Thomas Walsh formally identified his cousin's body at half-twelve that night, and x-rays of the body were taken. The following morning, Professor Harbison noted a number of wounds on John Carthy's body. There were four entry wounds apparent on his back, with four corresponding exit wounds to the front. However, there was a fifth wound discovered on John's body. It was another set of exit and entry wounds from a bullet. This one was on the back of John's right calf, but strangely, the trajectory of the wound was perpendicular to the ground on his leg, meaning that unless John had been effectively goose-stepping, the bullet had come from above. Initially, Harbison considered it a distinct bullet wound, but it was eventually worked out that the third shot had ricocheted in Carthy's pelvis, 
and taken a downward trajectory. It had exited his body through his groin in that manner and then proceeded down through his leg. The fourth and final shot had been what ultimately killed John Carthy, but Professor Harbison thought that it was possible, given the trajectory of that shot, that John may have been in the process of falling when he was hit by that bullet. It had entered his back, passed through his kidney, through his heart, and out the front of his upper chest on the left side. It was later thought that it was possible that this significant upward trajectory might be in part explained by the terrain, in that John was at the time walking up an incline. When John Carthy's shotgun was examined, it was confirmed as having been recently fired. There was one cartridge in the chamber and the safety was off. The evening of the 20th, the tragedy at Abilara led the news broadcasts and it was announced that there would be two internal Garda inquiries into the matter. One, the standard local inquiry which was required in any shooting situation and another special Garda inquiry due to the nature of the incident. But crucially, the findings of these inquiries would not be made public. John's family were dejected when they heard this. Not only were they trying to deal with the intense grief at losing John, it would seem that they would get no answers as to the events that had led to his death. News broke that John's gun had been confiscated from him in previous years, but the reasons, or lack thereof behind this, were not explained by the press. It appeared from the reporting that Gardi and medical professionals had been negligent in allowing a crazed and unstable man access to a weapon. This sort of narrative and portrait of John Carthy would continue uncorrected for some time. John's funeral took place on Easter Sunday, the 23rd of April 2000, in the local church in Abilara, St. Bernard's, a building that had played a huge role in John's short life. This time, his local church was filled with mourners, both neighbours and friends who came from Galway to pay their last respects. John Carthy was then buried in the local cemetery, just a few minutes' walk away. Within a few weeks, the technical examination of the scene was completed and the houses and property were released back to the Carthy family. They began the process of trying to move things from the old house to the new, but with the trauma still fresh, it was a difficult task. Before the old house could be completely cleared, the council came and knocked it down. Many of John's belongings were still inside. The special Garda investigation began under Chief Superintendent Adrian Culligan on the 21st of April 2000. The Carthy family were interviewed as well as Gardy who had been on the scene, but Marie Carthy noted in her book My Brother John that when she read over her statement there were parts of it missing, like the moment where she'd been held back or pushed away from the scene by a senior Garda and not allowed to speak with John alongside Martin Shelley. The FBI were brought in to consult with the Gardaí as part of the investigation and were asked to render an opinion on how the operation at Abilara had been conducted. They spoke only to law enforcement officials involved in the siege. This report was completed and sent to the Minister for Justice on the 30th of June 2000 and was passed on to the office of the DPP. The Culligan report described John as a volatile loner. It also contained criticism of John's friend, Kevin Ireland, the one that John had called, 
It said that he had delayed in contacting Gardi and detailed what he'd done instead in the two hours before he presented himself at the Garda station in Mill Street in Galway. Marie Carthy was accused in the report of having been under the influence of alcohol when she and Martin Shelley attended at the command vehicle for the second time. In fact, the report noted that Marie had not mentioned being restrained by Gardie in her statement, a detail that Marie says was left out, and this apparent omission on her part was used as supporting evidence of what a bad idea it would have been to allow her to the negotiation point. The implication being that Marie had intentionally neglected to mention being restrained because she'd known she was in no fit state to try and speak to her brother at that point. In fact, later Marie would say that she had had a single hot whiskey a few hours before. That was all. But the Culligan report was a far cry from what was required to settle the matter of John Carthy's death for his family, for his community and the country at large who had watched the so-called siege develop over 24 hours. There were rumours surrounding the possibility that a fifth shot had been fired and that this one had been done by one of the local guardie on the scene. These stories were an attempt to not only explain the fifth wound to John's body, but also the fact that one member of the guardie, Detective Sergeant Foley, was critical of the emergency response unit, saying that they had put local members in a dangerous situation. It's fairly unusual for a member of the guardie to make that sort of criticism, but it would make sense if perhaps Sergeant Foley was laying the groundwork to defend himself or another local member of the Gardee against allegations that they, too, had shot at John and that this had accounted for the fifth wound. Confounding matters, local guns were not examined after the incident and records kept locally were incomplete, meaning that there was no way to prove that a local gun had not, in fact, been fired. There were concerns that the Culligan report, as an internal Garda investigation, did not contain the full truth of what had happened in Abilara. On the 9th of October 2000, the day that would have been John's 28th birthday, the inquest into his death was opened at Longford Coroner's Court. The jury there had three options for the manner of John's death before them, death by misadventure, an open verdict, or that John had died of a gunshot. An open verdict would have inevitably led to a public inquiry into the matter, but the jury instead returned with the verdict that John had simply died after being shot. Shortly after this, a subcommittee in the Oireachtas, the Parliament of Ireland, was established to deal with the various allegations arising from objections to the Culligan Report. A parliamentary inquiry was announced to begin on the 24th of April 2001, which would take place over three weeks, and hear from not only the Gardaí, but family and medical and firearms experts. It was hoped that this inquiry would provide greater clarity regarding the events that had led to John's death and the decisions that had been taken by Gardaí on the scene. But after the committee had begun their work and after they had visited the site of the Carthys' home in Abilara, a submission on behalf of the Gardee was heard. Senior counsel John Rogers argued that a political committee such as this had no right to inquire into these events. The Gardee had already been questioned over the incident in the course of the Culligan report 
and therefore could not be questioned further. The matter was settled, they argued. From that point, Mr. Rogers would object strenuously to nearly every point raised in relation to the conduct of the guardee. After only two days of sitting, the inquiry was adjourned to resume in a month's time. A number of politicians spoke out and said that they thought that there was a concerted effort by the Gardaí to frustrate the inquiry, and Marie Carthy spoke to the press outside Leinster House, saying, quote, There is a public perception that Gardaí are unwilling to answer questions about what happened to John. We share that perception. End quote. The members of the Emergency Response Unit did not want to give evidence in public and wanted an exemption from having to do this. It was agreed that they would be allowed to give evidence from behind screens and on agreement that no pictures or video of them would be allowed to be shown. But before the month's adjournment was up, 36 members of Angarda Shiakana made a challenge in the High Court to the proceedings as a whole, saying that TDs and senators had no right to question the Gardaí about their actions in a matter such as this and that politicians weren't the proper people to carry out this work. A public inquiry or a tribunal would be more appropriate. The Carthy family agreed. The High Court found in favour of the 36 Gardaí in November of 2001, holding that the Dáil subcommittee inquiry had no power to make findings of fact, nor could they issue statements that would be adverse to the good name or reputation of citizens. The case would go to the Supreme Court and the government wasn't happy at being told that their inquiries into matters of importance to the state held little to no credibility. But in April of 2002, nearly two years after John's death, the Supreme Court upheld this ruling. The Dáil inquiry would go no further. And so the then Minister for Justice, John O'Donoghue, recommended that a public tribunal into the shooting death of John Carthy at Abbey Lara should be held. The tribunal, headed by a single judge, Mr Justice Robert Barr, opened in Longford on the 12th of February 2003. The family of John Carthy, the Gardaí and various other interested parties were granted legal representation to participate in the inquiry and the tribunal's terms of reference were set out. What exactly had happened? And what, if anything, could we learn from the tragedy at Abilara? The tribunal sat for a total of 208 days and heard from 169 witnesses, including Gardi and, in particular, the members of the emergency response unit who had been involved and who had objected previously to being questioned by the Oireachtas subcommittee. There were also a number of statements in evidence, as well as medical reports, such as John Carthy's autopsy, and expert psychiatric opinions on John's mental health. Mr Justice Barr heard from both Dr Cullen and Dr Shanley about John's medical history. He heard from John's friends, who described his personality and even spoke to John's fellow members of the gun club in Abilara to get a sense of how John was around firearms. Members of John's family gave evidence not only about who John was and what he was like, but the events leading up to Holy Thursday 2000. Thomas Walsh, John's cousin, who had tried to speak to him a number of times that night, described his memories of the night, along with his interaction with the Gardaí. Thomas recalled at the tribunal that Gardaí he'd spoken to said that John had requested cigarettes, but they wouldn't give them to John until he agreed to throw some cartridges out to them. He recalled one officer, Inspector Maguire, saying, quote, 
No, he's acting the bollocks. He's not getting his own way now, end quote. Later, the officer would deny having made such a statement. The Gardaí who were involved in the seizure of John's shotgun spoke before the tribunal. They described how that incident had progressed and that there were files on both the matter of the seizure and the mascot incident in Granard. Both the local Gardaí and the members of the emergency response unit were required to appear before the bar tribunal to describe, from their perspective, what had happened in Abilara. A barrister was appointed at the beginning of the inquiry to represent Garda interests in the matter, and at points throughout the hearings there were clashes between Mr Justice Barr and that counsel, Mr John Rogers. One particularly charged incident occurred while Professor Harbison was giving evidence regarding the wounds that he had observed on John Carthy's body. Justice Barr was noted for his habit of interjecting during questioning to ask something himself, to get clarity on a particular issue being spoken about. He believed it to be more efficient. Senior counsel John Rogers really hated this habit, though. And so while he was giving evidence, Mr Justice Barr questioned Professor Harbison about whether it was possible that there had been another fifth bullet that had perhaps come from a non-ERU member gun. Mr Rogers jumped up while the judge was speaking, accusing Barr of making outrageous comments. Barr ordered Rogers to resume his seat, but instead Mr Rogers stormed out of the Bow Street building. Proceedings continued as Gardy were still represented by other barristers on site, but shortly after, the tribunal was adjourned for the Christmas break. On their return in January, Barr made it clear that he would continue his habit of interjecting during examinations and rejected the idea that all questioning should be done by counsel only. He said he'd continue to look into the possibility of a fifth bullet, and in response, the remaining members of the legal team representing Angarda Shiakana withdrew from the proceedings in protest. The following day, 20 Gardi failed to turn up as had been requested by the tribunal. Shortly afterwards, Justice Barr told the press that he considered the issue of a fifth bullet no longer possible, and with that, lawyers working on behalf of the Gardi and the officers themselves were ready to take part in the tribunal process once more. The second tense interaction was when Marie Carthy appeared before the tribunal on the 25th and 26th of June 2003. During her evidence, she was once again accused of being drunk. Marie had said, however, that she had only had one hot whiskey sometime before, with a few others who had been gathered outside the house for some time and were cold. She told the tribunal that she had wanted to speak with her brother John, but that she had been told by Senior Gardee that she could not. They were now saying that it was too dangerous for her to approach the negotiation point. However, it had not been too dangerous for Thomas Walsh, or Martin Shelley, or Dr. Shanley, or the various members of the press that had been brought to the scene by Superintendent Farrelly. John Rogers also questioned her closely about the incident in February 2000, when she'd approached the Gardaí about worries she had regarding her brother's behaviour on a night out. Rogers wanted her to say that she'd told them that John was suicidal and that he had in fact been suicidal at that time. But Marie said she couldn't recall exactly what she'd told Gardy in order to get them to help her, nor did she ever recall a time where John had been suicidal. In the exchanges between the witness and the barrister, it's quite clear that there was a shared dislike of one another. 
Tense interactions between the judge, various counsel and witnesses were not the only problems that reared their heads during the inquiry. Information from the tribunal was intentionally leaked to the Sunday Independent newspaper while proceedings were still ongoing. On the 31st of October 2004, Maeve Sheehan wrote an article that stated John's former girlfriend, Ms X, had information that John and Marie had had a dispute over the ownership of a plot of land. The article speculated that this might shed some light on John's state of mind at the time. However, the piece of land in question, near to the family home in Abilara, which had once belonged to John's uncle Patsy, had been left to Rose Carthy on his passing. Rose intended to pass it on to John in her own will, as John had helped his uncle on the farm and the two had been close. There was never any question of Marie having a claim to that land, nor did John own it. Documents proving this had been provided to the tribunal by the family, but that element of the story was not leaked. It looked as if John had been somehow estranged from his sister, which might go some way to excuse the guardee for having denied her access to him. It was immediately suspected by Mr Justice Barr that the documents had been leaked by someone who had knowledge of Ms X's written statements, which had been the subject of applications at the tribunal just days before. Mr Justice Barr suspected that one of Mr Rogers' clients, or someone acting on their behalf, had leaked the information in order to, quote, thwart and circumvent my direction regarding privacy relating to the applications about the evidence of Ms X, and secondly, to promote a contention based on fundamentally incomplete information that there was disharmony in the Carthy family between mother, son and daughter, end quote. According to Marie Carthy's book, My Brother John, no member of the press had contacted her or her family to fact-check the article that was to appear before publication. Marie and her mother Rose took a case against both the Sunday Independent and the Daily Star who had repeated the incomplete information in an action that was settled a year and a half later, in May of 2006. The Sunday Independent issued a public apology, accepting that the information was false and apologising for any hurt distress or damage to their good names. After hearing all of the evidence and from all of the experts available to him, Mr Justice Barr retired to consider what conclusions might be drawn from what he had learned and what recommendations might be appropriate to make in light of those conclusions. The publication of the report took some time and was delayed a number of times not only due to the sheer volume of information produced but because Mr Justice Barr began to suffer ill health in the process of its preparation. In the end, Barr took the time to lay out a number of matters he thought were deserving of further careful consideration. Firstly, the way the Gardie had been physically arranged around the Carthy house was not up to standard. The inner cordon of the armed ERU members were much too close and much too visible to John as he paced around inside the house. Not only was the sight of the guardie likely agitating, he also probably felt a bit of power being able to simply shoot out the front window of the house, making the police duck and take cover. It was not appropriate and not helpful in de-escalating the situation. Further, the location of the command vehicle in the middle of the road only yards from the Carthy's front gate was wholly inappropriate, as was the fact that guardie, armed and unarmed, were present and visible at that place. This added to the fact that there had been no real plan should Carthy exit the house, armed and without warning, had led to John's death. 
Had the road been clear, the emergency response unit would have been able to put in place a moving containment, like they'd planned, but as it was, Carthy had appeared to be armed and advancing on other officers. They were frightened. In fact, one of the officers that was present in that area gave evidence that he was just a second or two from shooting John himself when Carthy fell to the ground after the fourth shot. Superintendents Shelley and Byrne, the officers in overall command of the operation, came in for severe criticism, particularly in how they went about supporting the ERU through providing information. They hadn't spoken to Dr. Cullen or Dr. Shanley or Kevin Ireland, all people who had information that would have been useful to Sergeant Jackson, who was trying to defuse a difficult situation. There was general criticism of the command structure that had been put in place, the fact that so few members of the ERU had been sent to Abilara, meaning that rest periods were nearly impossible for most of them, and the fact that an inexperienced negotiator had been sent to work there alone. Not only that, but rather than provide John Carthy with the things he'd asked for, a solicitor or cigarettes, these items had instead been used as bargaining chips. This had done nothing to endear the officers to John Carthy. If some or any of these circumstances had been different, if the decisions that the Gardaí had made had been better informed and better thought out, John Carthy would not have ended up on a road with a loaded weapon walking towards police officers. He would not have been shot, or at least he certainly needn't have been killed. The Bar Tribunal report was well received by the Carthy family and the people of Abilara, but its finding that John shouldn't have died in this incident was little consolation for the fact of his loss. At the end of July 2006, a letter arrived at the new house in Abilara. It was from the Garda Commissioner, Noel Conway. According to Marie Carthy, the letter both apologised for John's death and assured the family that the recommendations of the bar report would be examined closely and would inform changes in procedures in the future. It was right and proper that the Carthys should receive an apology, but Marie Carthy recalled in her book that her anger was not diminished by the letter. This apology was six years and two inquiries too late and could not erase what Marie had felt had been a total unwillingness for the Gardie to admit wrongdoing or to fully cooperate with the investigation into John's death. Finally, on the 29th of November 2006, the Bar Report was debated in the Dáil, six months after it had been published and well into the new term. But it was to share its debate billing with no less than three other public inquiries into Garda conduct, which had all been held over the same period of time. It was not a good reflection of the state of the Gardaí in recent years. There was no crime here, not really, just a young man suffering from an illness and an ill-equipped, inexperienced and sometimes negligent armed police force engaged in some sort of power play with him. The result of the siege at Abilara was much the same as a crime though, tragedy and trauma for John Carthy's family, friends and the community of Abilara. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, just tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Mike, Abigail Sutherland, Francis, Georgia Reed, who has upped her pledge, Jen, Isabella Moen, Finn Dwyer of the excellent Irish History Podcast, and Lily Bentley. Thank you guys so much. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Don't forget to get 10% off vitamins for your first three months with Ritual by heading to ritual.com forward slash men's. You'll also get 15% off your purchase of headphones at studio.com with the code GUILTY. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so go check them out. You get a great deal and the warm, fuzzy feeling of helping a gal out. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.